Hi, welcome to this Physicians Weekly's podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles. I'm your host for this podcast. And today we've got some great interviews as usual. This is Physicians Weekly. Welcome to episode 96. In this episode, we go back to the basics, hearing about how to get the best diagnosis for your patient, as well as good news about reducing suicide rates in bipolar adolescence. I'd like to ask my friend and colleague physicians who their medical hero has been for their training or their career, and who made them take a step back and really see things differently. One close friend of mine answered without hesitation, Dr. Gary Milligman, for teaching him the nearly lost art of diagnostics. Dr. Milligman is a cardiologist who cares for patients at the UCSF Cardiovascular Care and Prevention Center. In our second interview, we talk about the question of where bipolar adolescents actually have better outcomes. In a recently published report in JAMA Psychiatry, a Swedish team found that male adolescents living in areas where bipolar disorder is diagnosed more frequently are also associated with significantly fewer suicide deaths than in patients living in areas where bipolar disorder is less prevalent. The study suggests that early recognition and intervention for bipolar disorder can likely improve outcomes for adolescents, and in this case, boys, although there was a clear trend toward girls as well. We speak with lead author Dr. Adrian Desai-Bostrom at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, about the implications of his cross-sectional study. Enjoy listening. I just wanted to start off by asking you to perhaps introduce yourself and, and discuss what are some of your interests are. Well, my name is Gary Milligman. Grew up in the Bronx, New York. Now work. I'm a UCSF professor of medicine, cardiology in San Francisco. Been in San Francisco ever since I was an intern in 1980. So that that dates me. I actually don't publish many papers. I don't do any significant research. What I do is teach and take care of patients. So that that's what I'm good at. That's what I've been told you're good at as well. And I've been told that you are a uniquely good diagnostician. Could you talk about how you go about that? Sure. Well, I think the first thing it takes is a little pride in yourself that you're not going to take the easy way of diagnosis and treatment. And just as an aside, my theory of child rearing is that giving a kid a sense of self-worth and self-respect really keeps them out of a lot of trouble and keeps them kind of doing their best. I mean, my father taught me it's just as easy to do something well as do it sloppy. He had a shoe store in Spanish Harlem, and when I was a teenager, I would sweep the streets, help on the weekends, sell shoes. If I wasn't doing a good job sweeping the streets, like, do you have any pride in yourself? If you're sweeping, do it right. And I think that really plays into what we do. Sometimes I think docs are too rushed and maybe too quick to take the first easy diagnosis and not really think. And so if you think you're special, then you think you can come up with just the right diagnosis and treatment plan for your individual patient. I think part of it is really getting a good story from the patient. And to do that, you have to be curious. What makes this patient unique? And you have to ask questions the right way. So, for example, just yesterday, I had a 68-year-old guy come in with syncope. 
And he had a moderate amount of risk factors for coronary disease. And sometimes syncope can be related to coronary disease. So I asked the house staff, does he have any symptoms to suggest angina or ischemia? And they said, no, he looks great, he's active, no complaints of symptoms. And so when I went to talk to him, I asked him the same questions, how active are you? Oh, I do seven to 10,000 steps a day. He's retired, very intelligent guy, you know, and I get around fine. So I just asked him a simple question of, well, do you walk up hills? How do you feel when you walk up hills? He goes, well, I kind of avoid hills because when I walk up hills, I get this consistent pressure in my chest and it makes me slow down. Now his workup is not finished yet, and whether that symptom is related to a syncope, we don't know. But I would say there's little doubt in my mind that he does have some ischemia, some coronary disease, but it just took asking the question in a different way and understanding how he feels when he does things. Because many patients will tell you, I have no symptoms, but then I always ask, well, what do you do? And how do you feel when you do this? And why don't you do this? Because patients will naturally not do things they don't feel good while doing and cut back and not even realize it themselves. So getting a clear story of what the patient's feeling is kind of the first critical thing. And I would say another thing is have the right set of plan for a differential diagnosis in your mind. So most people are taught most likely to least likely is your differential diagnosis. And I was taught when I was a medical student, I find it extremely helpful to have three lists in mind. One is most likely to least likely. The second is what could this person have that I can't afford to miss now? Absolutely. And it's a very different list. So it might be somebody with some chest pain and you got to think, well, I can't miss aortic dissection. Could this be aortic dissection? Could this be an MI? And and there's a variety of things like that. And then the third list, which is fun, is what could this person have that everybody else is missing? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) And, you know, it's surprising how often I'll take over the care of a patient in the hospital or they'll come to me for a second opinion. And those lists are really very helpful. And for the second and third lists, you don't have to find something that often to make it really worthwhile. Absolutely. I guess the other thing is we're kind of like Sherlock Holmes. The clues are always there. You just have to see them. And those clues might be on the physical exam, what they look like. It may be in the story that they tell and the story that you get from them. It might be something on the EKG. So, uh, you know, I really teach my fellows and residents and med students to look with soft eyes. And what I mean by that is don't look too specifically at the EKG initially or even at the patient. Just kind of take it all in and be curious. And when something looks funny, when something you don't understand, don't just pass that off. Just be curious, ask the question, 
what is that funny thing on the EKG that I see? Why is this guy's got kind of got a funny color? What does that mean? And you don't have to have the answer, but just asking the question really teaches you a lot. That's interesting. So when you say soft eyes, do you mean sort of just not focusing on the details, but taking the big picture in? Is that what you mean? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, exactly. So when I look at you, I could say, well, Rachel has these kind of lips and that nose and those kind of eyes and eyebrows. But I could just glance at you and say, oh, that's Rachel. Yes. I I don't have to look at all those details. And as you get more experience, you can do that with EKGs, with with patients, you know, but again, it's surprising how often people will look at the chest X-ray and just see what they've been told to see rather than ask the questions. So you're called down to see a patient with pneumonia, but you have to look at the chest X-ray yourself, not hear what your resident or the ER doc told you and say, hmm, do I agree that that chest X-ray is pneumonia? Could it be something else? How does it fit with the patient's story, other labs, other things? And then when things don't match, why don't they match? I like this idea of curiosity, but just to zoom in a bit more on the diagnostics of diseases in general, not just cardiology perhaps, do you think AI will be important in helping people ask those three sets of questions in the future? I think a key to what I do is individualize every diagnosis and treatment plan. And it's very easy, just something simple like hypertension. You can have your list of meds that have been studied and this is the recommended first drug to use. And if that doesn't work, add this or, you know, and there's a simple list for it, but the right treatment for a patient takes into account a lot of other little things. Like, do they also have Raynaud's that bother them, right? And so right. you want them to take their meds and it's like, well, calcium channel blockers is number one on the list, but I think it's gonna help them with their Raynaud's. Or do they have palpitations? Beta blockers aren't number one on the list either. Do Is their blood pressure more labile than most? So an alpha beta blocker like carvedilol will, and their hypertension seems to be adrenergically mediated, right? So there's a lot of subtlety to every patient's decision-making that I think you really want to individualize. And maybe I can do that, but I don't know that it can. And so moving down, you mentioned patient shared decision-making. I think this is also something that's really interesting. How do you go about that? How do we bridge that gap and how does that communication work in your experience? Yes, good question. Well, I think it comes down to being a good teacher. So I not only teach med students, residents, fellows, but I teach patients all the time. And so I don't teach a med student and the fellow the same way. They have a different background, different level of understanding. And with patients, it's the same thing. So not only do you have to understand their level of education, how you use language with that person. You also have to understand what their fears, concerns are. Yes. And tailor your discussion about 
their disease process or the evaluation they're going to undergo in a way that's acceptable to them and they understand. And a big part of that is not only the way you explain it, but gaining their trust, that they feel that you care about them rather than just you care about their disease process. And I never try to force people into anything. Ultimately, it's their decision. They live with the results of their decision. You know, my job is to advise them and help make sure they understand why I'm advised the way I am. You mentioned that you tailored the information to each patient and also their treatment plan was individualized based on their preferences, values, and whatnot, but also there are other comorbidities perhaps. But do you do the same when you're teaching to residents and fellows? Do you also individualize their learning plan as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, some people have mathematical minds. Some people have, you know, this much background knowledge and other people this much background knowledge and uh, many times I'll have the resident or fellow teach the level below them right I would say you know Zach can you explain to the med student this and and when I do that I uh, hopefully am teaching the fellow how to teach so I might say you you have the idea very well but let let me explain it this way and tell me, this is to the fellow, do you think, does the med student understand it differently? So what are the obstacles to this and how can we perhaps look at the educational system for students and fellows and residents and improve upon it within the limitations of our systems? I think our system is getting too tech heavy imaging heavy, computer heavy, and people are forgetting to look at the patient, talk to the patient, listen to the heart, look at the physical clues that are there. And you could probably do a pretty good job most of the time with without doing that. But, you know, many times there's a clue on the physical exam that was missed on the echocardiogram that's critical and makes a huge difference in what the patient has and what the patient's outcome is. Before I started my cardiology fellowship, I spent a month at Shahada Zedek in, in Jerusalem with Professor Monty Zion, who was from South Africa and was kind of a, a master clinician. And of course, He's older than me. And, you know, before there was echocardiogram technology and the physical exam and the story had much higher importance. And so I actually love that stuff and think it's extremely important. I'll give you an example. I teach Dartmouth medical students sometimes, and they come to San Francisco. And I had given a talk on the importance of physical exam, and one of the students said, oh, 40-year-old guy is here with severe heart failure, and I heard this murmur that I think is a tricuspid regurge murmur. And can you come listen to it with me? So I said, well, why does the guy have heart failure? 
well, he has diastolic dysfunction. You know, we put a PA line in and his all, all his filling pressures were high and he had a lot of edema and we diuresed him 30 pounds already of fluid and he's feeling better. And, and I go, and his echo is normal. Yeah, his echo is normal. No valve disease, normal LV function. Well, does he have a history of untreated hypertension? I mean, why does a 40-year-old have diastolic heart failure? There is a heart failure of morbid obesity, which he theoretically could have had. Anyway, the point is, he wasn't my patient. But I went and listened, and I go, well, great. You did a great job picking up this little holosystolic murmur, but I really think it's a mitral regurge murmur, not tricuspid. And I can't tell how much it is. And let's look at the echo together. And the echo was not an easy echo in a 350-pound guy, but had no mitral valve to look normal. And I go, well, I trust myself. I trust what I hear, not that I'm always right. And I said, well, this is a critical thing because if this guy has a lot of mitral regurge, maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's what everybody's missing. So don't mention my name. You tell your team you heard this murmur and you have to get a transesophageal echo. You know, which they did. He had a torn posterior leaflet cordae, he had severe eccentric MR, he had surgery, it was fixed, and he was fine. And so all that came from just paying attention, putting the story together, hearing a little clue and saying, you know, how does this impact this guy's story? So I guess my final question is just basically what are the take-home messages for young physicians out there, clinicians, and in the art of diagnostics? Because is it a dying art? Is it something we need to ensure is taught thoroughly? No, absolutely. Absolutely. You have to get the young docs off the computer, in the room, talking to the patient, understanding how to get a story, the importance of really understanding the patient's story, and looking at all the clues available. And a lot of the clues are, are on technology. Nowadays, a lot of house staff carry their own mini echo machines around with them. I really appreciate your time and experience and knowledge, and I appreciate your insights. My pleasure. So thank you so much for joining us today. Could you just start off by telling me a little bit about yourself and your research? Oh, thank you. So I am uh, working as a clinical doctor specializing in child and adolescent psychiatry and at Stockholm Healthcare Services. Uh, I'm also a postdoctoral researcher at uh, the Department of Clinical Neuroscience at Karolinska Institute in, in Stockholm. And I am currently working on researching direct clinical approaches to tackle the alarming rates of adolescent suicide and to enhance the recognition and accessibility of evidence-based treatments for, for youth with severe mental illness. Right. And as I understand it, in particular, bipolar disorder makes up a fairly large portion of those adolescent suicides. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, you know, suicide rarely happens in, in the absence of severe mental health problems. I think retrospective studies demonstrate that up to 90% of adolescents who die from suicide have some form of psychiatric disorder. Of these, we know that affective disorders, such as major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder, stand for the vast majority of those cases. 
it hasn't been completely detailed in, in the research, the exact contribution of bipolar disorder, but we know that bipolar disorder is associated with a 20-fold increased risk of death by suicide. And so you used a registry data to look into this a bit more, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Could you describe your study? Uh, so in, in Sweden, we have the advantage of the single-payer system. So we have data from all across the nation. And uh, our latest research was based on Swedish National Registry data for the years 2008 up until 2021. And during this period, 585 uh, adolescents died by suicide. We noticed there were substantial regional variations, both in suicide death rates and in bipolar diagnosis rates and in the implementation rates of advanced medical psychiatric treatments for the severe mentally ill. So our study investigated whether regional differences in bipolar diagnosis rates were associated with suicide death rates at the regional level. I was actually quite surprised to find such a strong association at the regional level, which is really a macro level, right? And I think this is possible due to the vast discrepancies in bipolar diagnosis rates across the different Swedish regions. For example, for 2021, uh, regions that haven't diagnosed a single case of bipolar disorder in, in male adolescence, while other regions are working adamantly to do so. So there were large regional discrepancies that we could work with to try and really discover whether an early diagnosis of bipolar disorder would be associated with some type of suicide protective effect. The results were strong and, and indicated that up to 4.7% lower suicide death rates compared to the national averages in regions with higher rates of bipolar disorder diagnosis. And these results were independent of other factors that could influence suicide death rates at the regional level, such as uh, psychiatric care affiliation rates in youth, the prevalence of depression and schizophrenia, and also the proportion of outpatient to inpatient visits. So it appeared quite robust, and it, we also replicated the findings by taking the lowest quartile observations, that is to say regions with a lower suicide death rates, and we contrasted them to how many bipolar disorder diagnosed compared to the other group, and uh, we could also validate that there was a significant strong association that regions with lower suicide death rates were also in the higher quartile regarding bipolar diagnosis rates. This is unusually good news, is it not? Your, your data really shows that the more you diagnose it, the rates of suicide drop, allowing us to draw the conclusion that early intervention and early support of a diagnosis makes all the difference. Would you... Agree with that conclusion? Yes, I do. And uh, we cannot, you know, draw causal conclusions regarding the exact mechanism of the suicide protective effects. We know that uh, regions increase their bipolar disorder diagnosis rates, the suicide rate in males are reduced. And this could, for example, be due to better mental health care at the regional level, effects from early treatment and intervention or, or, or management of bipolar disorder. I spoke to one of the co-authors who has been an avid supporter of early diagnosis of bipolar disorder for, for the last 30 years and is working on this in one of the Swedish regions and he informed me that when 
when we diagnose youth with bipolar disorder, there is a whole uh, package of support for them. There is medication, there is psychoeducation, there are improved access to mental health care. And, and he feared then that in regions where severe mental illness in youth is very controversial, that this type of severe behavior might be explained in other ways rather than uh, biological psychiatric disorders, and that this could actually produce some type of iatrogenic harm to these patients that increase the suicide risk. All right, and I was going to ask about females. Why why is this effect not carried across, do you think? I think it's important to recognize that we were looking at this at the regional macro level, and uh, uh, males stood for about two times more suicide deaths compared to females. So there might be a lack of power to find this association in females at a significant level, but there was a trend in the same direction. Okay. So what are some of the next steps? We are looking to further investigate different aspects of health inequities and their consequences on the diagnosis and, and treatment of youth with severe mental illness. As a researcher, an epidemiologist and a biostatistician, for me, these large, substantial and unmotivated uh, regional differences in diagnosis and treatment rates, they appear as if they were almost like a large, randomized, controlled study which is poorly randomized and without ethical permits. So I think there's, there's a great opportunity to actually see what, what the effect is of diagnosing severe mental illness and working in a more medical psychiatric way. And our previous research in, in Nature Communications, which was published uh, a couple of months ago, also demonstrated that regions with higher implementation rates of, for example, Clozapine, lithium and ECT also have lower suicide death rates in, in male adolescents. And uh, we think this is like, it's hard to say that it's, it's a direct suicide protective effect of this treatment from this macro type research. But it could be that clinicians that use these types of treatments, they are working with someone who has a diagnosis of severe mental illness. Right? So it could also be a proxy for increased recognition and, and management of the severely ill. But there is ample evidence, though, in, in adults to indicate that also actually these treatments have a suicide protective effect when it's given to the right patient on the right indication. We wanted to see whether we could demonstrate the same type of effect in adolescents. Yes. Basically based on the assumption that in youth psychiatry there is a change of care in Sweden when you turn 18. Exactly. So you go to the adult psychiatric services and the use of, for example, ECT treatments are increased almost 500 times. Uh, and we thought this was more like an arbitrary cutoff um, that a 17-year-old would be more neurobiologically similar to a 19-year-old than a 7-year-old and that they could be disadvantaged by this excessive focus on pediatric care. I understand. Okay, so uh, do you have any final comments to share with your fellow physician scientists? I think that the biopsychosocial model that is proposed as a fantastic solution in youth psychiatric care is heavily reliant on the biological part taking into account knowledge from the adult psychiatric field. In Sweden, for example, uh, youth psychiatry is belongs to the pediatrics and it's separated from adult psychiatric practice. So I think it's important to recognize that youth psychiatry may need a paradigm shift in treating adolescents with severe mental illness who are nearing the adult age. These patients should 
probably benefit from treatments that are more common in, in adult psychiatric care. That's excellent conclusions. All right, so thank you so much for your time, Dr. Desai Buster. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly.